Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. They say it's not practical enough, just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation. His designs and structure, each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta See the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palloon, and I am so lucky to have my beautiful co-host with me, my wife. 
I'm Melissa Pellew. Are you there, honey? I am here. I'm back finally, post baby. Um, <laughs> I've been gone for for a couple months now um, with having the baby and taking care of her and her birth and that, and um, she's doing well. And we thank everyone for their prayers for Eliana. Um, but it does feel great to be back um, with everyone and to be back with you too on the air, babe. Yeah, we definitely missed having having you around, keeping me in line. <laughs> so we're glad you guys could make it with us. Uh, we did not have a a show last week. Um, sadly, uh, maybe Melissa, maybe you want to uh, talk about why we missed last week. I don't know if you wanted yeah. to mention that or not, and have people yeah. praying for you. Yeah, people were praying, and I appreciate that. Um, had a death in our family, a cousin in a car accident unexpectedly. So we were with family last week. Um, as much as we wanted to be on the show, and we had a great show lined up. We felt that it was the most appropriate thing to be with family first and um, to be together and praying together as we went through that difficult time. And we're, it's still tough, but we are um, getting through it, and the Lord's helped us and given us comfort and peace. Um, so, um, again, very thankful to him for for getting us through that, for continuing to get us through this difficult time. That's right, and uh, God has been God has been gracious and good, and um, we know He'll continue to be that way because it's His character, it's His nature of who He is. And mm-hmm. uh, even when bad things happen and tragedy strikes, uh, God is on the throne. You know, that's, uh, that's the thing. It's not about this life. Um, it's, it's ultimately about uh, you know where you're going in the next, mm-hmm. so it's important. So to get just a few uh, housekeeping things out of the way, uh, if you have not liked us on Facebook yet, uh, I would suggest you go to facebook.com/theologymatterswiththepalus, facebook.com/theologymatterswiththepalus. And uh, we have a whole host of um, uh, past episodes on there that we have done. Uh, We interview some of the absolute best guests, some of the best minds. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been able to have Dr. Geisler uh, come on. We uh, we did a whole hour and a half with Dr. Paul Copan, uh, who came on and and, uh, did an hour and a half uh, just answering questions uh, dealing with atheism and naturalism and uh, whether or not the Bible was reliable. Uh, you can find that in our in our archive. Uh, well, who else? Uh, Melissa, who else have we had on? Um, we've had Shannon Guthrie, a uh, philosophy professor with us. Um, we've had many of the Southern Evangelical Seminary professors on the air with us. Dr. Richard Howe, Dr. Ted Wright's mm-hmm. been on with us. Douglas Beaumont's been with us. Um We've had Lindsey Graham, sorry, not Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Brooks, excuse me, from Apologetics.com Radio um, with us. Um, so, just so many wonderful people that um, that I can't even keep up with them all. It's, it's been great to see so many wonderful minds, people who have studied, who have spent their lives studying and defending the Christian faith, so willing to come on our show. I mean, which is, I mean, we're we're no names, you know. <laughs> But um, just willing to come on with us and just to let us pick their brains and to share all the wonderful things that they've studied with our audience so that we all can be equipped and strengthened in our faith and um, and ready to go out and defend the gospel and to share it with others. So um, that has really been 
mind-blowing to me just the the response that we have gotten from the apologetics community in support of what we're doing. Absolutely. Maybe you can just for those Melissa who who are are new and just kind of turning in to the show, um, maybe tell them a little bit about what our show is, is about and uh, the purpose of the show and why we do it. Absolutely. Um, well, the the name of the show is Theology Matters, and we absolutely believe that theology matters. What you think about God and who He is um, has a direct impact on how you live your life, and. So this show is about truth, and it's about um, digging into some difficult and, and some deep topics and trying to find truth, and in the midst of that, um, uh, getting closer to the Lord, growing in our personal walks with Him, um, being equipped um, in our minds to defend the, the historic Christian faith, um, and and also being equipped to go out and share our faith with others and being um, bold and, and, and strengthened to do that. Um, the show is um, we keep everything is is accessible to every anyone whether you've been studying apologetics for 20 years or whether you have no idea what apologetics is. The show is accessible to everyone. It's on a level where everyone can understand. Um, we have our our chat room open during each show where um, we can uh, have conversations there and ask questions there. We have our phone lines open um, where you can actually just have an, an open time to call and speak with our guests and, and ask questions and get clarification. So this is ultimately about glorifying God and building up the body of Christ. Yep, that is that is our our greatest desire as believers is we want to uh, point people to Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and that is why we do what we do. So mm-hmm. our guest um, should be coming on here shortly. Uh, today we are going to actually interview one of my favorite uh, apologists of the faith. Uh, his name is Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, and uh, he was really instrumental in me coming to Christ um, probably a decade ago. Uh, many of you know that uh, you know I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but really did not have a lot of answers, and I had a lot of questions. Um, things like, you know, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know God even exists? Um, what about evolution? What about Noah's flood? What about some of these things? And uh, God radically uh, saved me one night. I was watching uh, a debate between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, and um, God used that debate to uh, to save me. And by the end of that debate, I had been driven to my knees, and I was in prayer, and God had regenerated me. And from that point on, I just had such a desire to learn about the issues of origins, uh, primarily um, creation versus evolution. Um, I, you know, I grew up, my grandfather and uh, and me were very, very close. Um, I have great parents, great family, uh, but I had really bonded with my grandfather. And uh, he had moved here from England, and he had been in World War II, um, but he was also an atheist, and he also um, held to Darwin's theory of evolution. And I'm not saying uh, all atheists, um, you, know, you can't be a Christian and hold to the theory of evolution. I, I'm not saying that, although I would say there's serious problems with it, I, I, I believe. Um, but um, so it was actually through watching, uh, there was another debate that had come on, God's Providence, 
between a creationist and uh, and an evolutionist, and I was just amazed. I didn't even know that uh, there were, you know, such a, a field of apologetics and and that, and that's when I was introduced to uh, Dr. Sarfati's writings, and uh, was just absolutely blown away uh, by his mind, by his intellect, but also uh, just the fact that uh, you know there is real, good, solid evidence um, that not only God exists, but uh, it's the God of the Bible, and uh, and He created it like we are told. Genesis is a historical narrative, I believe. And uh, it is giving us history. Of course, Genesis in the Bible uh, is not a science book, so to speak. But when it hits on issues of science, uh, anthropology, geology, astronomy, when it hits on those areas, it is always correct. And so I am so thankful for ministries like Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, Institute for Creation Research, um, you know, those were, were ministries when I first got saved. I really uh, came under, and I was really blessed to to be a part of that. So we are gonna we're gonna do a show on that. And I know Melissa, you're pretty interested in this area as well, right? It is. It was the first area um, of apologetics that I did get in, involved in as well because you were, <laughs> and we um, were dating at the time when you. Um, really got involved in the whole creation evolution um, discussion and debate and studying. So um, I obviously got connected to it, maybe because I was trying to get closer to you, but um, I, I did learn a lot and grew a lot, and it really um, just whet my appetite for, for so much more. And um, and we've got a ton of resources at our home from Creation Ministries International and from other um, creation ministries and, and intelligent design ministries. So it's been um, great learning this topic and really excited to have Dr. Safadi on with us later today. Yeah, let's, you know, let's talk about it for, for just a couple minutes. Why, why is this issue, do you think, so important? Why is it so, so important uh, to us as believers? Because our origins matter, and um, wh- where we came from, it absolutely has an implication on how we view ourselves, how we view um, our lives, the value of our lives, and um, so that that I mean that has a foundation on on our on our lives in in a, you know a dramatic way. Um, and again, I mean, if God did not create us and uh, then we're not accountable to him, and if he did create us, then we're his, and we need to know who this God is and live by his by his design and rules for our lives. So there's a lot of implications um, that come with either accepting um, that we're created by God or, or rejecting that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just as you say, the, the, our origins matter, and uh, it's really the foundation of uh, of our of our faith. And mm-hmm. um, you know, if uh, if the Bible, I, I believe, is not correct on areas of Adam and Eve, um, you know, it's ultimately it's it boils down to to the gospel. And uh, if there's no literal fall with a with a literal you know literal sin and a literal fall, uh, then kind of the whole basis of Christianity uh, is going to be way off. So let me. Um, 
I wanted to to look at uh, a certain particular scripture um, because I think it deals with this very very well. And we've done shows before um, where we've gone over um, kind of a systematic theology, which I was doing at the time with with uh, my young adults group. Um, but uh, Melissa, I'm going to have you, if you can, uh, go to Romans chapter one. And this passage is very, uh, very amazing. I mean, it's very incredible. A lot of people think, um, you know, the only way we can know, uh, for example, that God exists is if we go to the Bible. And um, while I'm not opposed to going to the Bible, uh, I believe that there's other ways uh, that we can know God exists. And sometimes this is called natural revelation. So, uh, Melissa, can you can you go ahead and read uh, Romans chapter one, starting in verse uh, eighteen? Okay, eighteen to verse. Uh, just go to, uh, I guess, go to about uh, verse uh, twenty-five is fine. Okay. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, you said go to what verse? Uh, I was going to say 20. I'm sorry, 20. 25? Uh-huh. Okay. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Tell us, uh, give us kind of the gist of that verse, Melissa. What do you think that, that it's, it's saying? Um, well, obviously, um, it, it's telling us that we can understand and know um, just by looking at the creation that there's a Creator um, by virtue of the fact that uh, a creation demands a Creator, and therefore uh, men are without excuse from knowing that God exists because um, there is a creation that um, points to the existence of the creator. That's, one That's of the right. Points. And, uh, you know, we we can know certain things for, for sure that God exists. Uh, so when people ask, you know, how do you know God exists? Well, uh, nature. Nature itself is a, is a pretty good uh, place to start. It says men know that God exists. They know this truth. Uh, but they they suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because it says God has shown it to them. So we can know God exists uh, by looking at uh, at nature, and uh, and that's that is uh, extremely important. And we need to be able to use that uh, in our apologetic. So there's different arguments uh, that can be used. Some are uh, cosmological arguments, and uh, these would go from starting at the uh, sometimes at the beginning of the universe. If you guys are uh, at all familiar with uh, William Lane Craig, 
Uh, he has uh, done numerous debates. I've listened to probably most of all of them. And uh, he's very well known for uh, kind of perfecting the Kalam cosmological argument. And the Kalam cosmological argument would start uh, from the beginning of the universe. Uh, and it would, it would say basically um, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Uh, premise two, the universe began to exist, and then the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And um, really, to defeat the argument, you're going to have to tear down those two premises. And you're going to have to demonstrate that the two premises are uh, in error. So, of course, the first premise, whatever begins to exist, has a cause. Um, Dr. Craig uh, does, a, does a good job, I think. Uh, demonstrating that, I think it's just something that we just kind of all know. It's kind of intuitive, I think. You can't get something from nothing. And uh, kind of a lot of times what happens is the atheist wants to um, redefine what they mean by nothing. Um, if you have not seen the debate with the well-known atheist, um, uh, either a physicist or a cosmologist, cosmologist Lawrence Krauss, uh, you'll see him, and at one point in the debate, he's saying there's there's several different types of nothing. And so a lot of times what happens is the scientist wants to uh, take the word nothing and apply it to just kind of like empty space. And uh, as Dr. Craig points out, is what we're talking about by nothing is, is, is nothing, no being, no time, no space, no matter, um, because sometimes, uh, you know, they'll give an example of... Um, of, uh, you know, a part of this popping, popping into existence or something out of nothing. And uh, that, that, of course, uh, is not what happens. Uh, normally it is in a, some type of um, experiment, and they're using a lot of energy, and, and uh, they're still in time, they're still in space. And so they can get these type of particles to pop in and out of existence. But, of course, it's not what we mean by nothing. We're talking metaphysically nothing, no being. Uh, secondly, that the universe began to exist. <clears throat> numerous lines of evidence for this, uh, from the laws of thermodynamics, uh, everything is running down, uh, and everything is eventually going to uh, to run out. Uh, the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, does a, an extremely good job with this. Um, they devote a whole chapter um, dealing uh, with uh, the laws of thermodynamics, and now it really demonstrates that the universe began to exist, and uh, the fact that we still have a sun and we see stars and we have energy uh, would demonstrate that it's not eternal. And uh, sometimes I give the example uh, that if if uh, I had you come over to my house and uh, we were going to have some coffee, and you sat down and you touched that cup of coffee, and it was it was hot. Um, you know, you would you would not know maybe the exact minute that it was made, but you would have somewhat of an idea of when it was uh, made. You wouldn't you would know it wasn't three hours ago because it's still warm. So you know, what if you came over though to my house and we sit down to have coffee and you touch the cup and you touch the coffee and the coffee's cold? And I said, well, how long has it been there? Well, you you wouldn't really know because uh, if it's not hot no heat, then it could it could be sitting there for a month, it could be sitting there for 
you know, who knows how long. Uh, probably not billions of years, though. <laughs> uh, so that is a good good evidence that uh, the universe began to exist. The second is the expanding universe. We we know that the universe is expanding. We see this through uh, what sometimes is called redshift. Uh, the fact when the astronomers uh, when the astronomers are looking through the uh, the telescope and they see the light that is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum, they know that they that uh, things are pulling away. Things are are pulling away. So. And there's other there's other tests they can do to show that the universe is expanding, and of course the um, the implications of that is, is if it is expanding, then uh, it couldn't have been expanding forever for eternity. Uh, it's kind of like uh, if you watch watch a movie, if you see the universe as you're watching it on film kind of blow up like a balloon. Well, eventually, if you rewind that film and you go back down to a certain point, uh, you're going to hit a point of literally nothing. And that's uh, sometimes uh, referred to as a singularity or the moment of the, the creation. Um, and so uh, that's another strong evidence that the universe began to exist. And there's other there's other arguments besides just those. What's what's some other ones, Melissa, that you can think of off the top of your head? Um, arguments for the beginning of the universe? Or for the existence of God. Uh, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about the cosmological arguments. What's, what's uh, give us another one. Um, uh, the the moral argument, um, the argument from from objective objective morality, um, that uh, because we do have um, a sense of right and wrong, and in an objective sense that there must be an objective lawgiver. Also, the anthropic principle which is um, the argument from design, um, theological, um, which demonstrates that because the universe um, is complex and specifically designed, that there must be a designer. Yes, that is absolutely right. And there are, again, there's really several arguments uh, that the Christian can go to. Um, so Romans 1, again, it's using more of a natural natural revelation and uh, natural revelation of course it is enough to condemn but it's not enough to save uh, natural revelation can tell us that God exists uh, but natural revelation alone cannot tell us who the designer is although uh, Frank Turek in uh, in the book I don't have enough faith to be an atheist him and Dr. Geisler uh, wrote that book in that book they do lay out a case though for monotheism and monotheism is just the belief in one God. And uh, they do believe uh, that you can get to a monotheistic God by the creation of the universe. And in fact, um, if you guys do not have uh, Dr. Douglas Grotice's book um, called uh, Christian Apologetics, then I would really highly suggest uh, you guys get that book. Uh, it is it is an excellent book. It's uh full of uh, of arguments for the faith and how to respond to arguments against the faith. But he also has a chapter in that book on how to deal um, with the cosmological argument and gives some very good philosophical arguments for getting to um, a, a monotheistic God. And, and 
Um, let me explain how that's done. Let me. Uh, first of all, space, time, and matter comes into being. And because space, time, and matter comes into being, uh, Frank Turk and, and Geisner would argue that God uh, himself cannot be in space and time. Thus, as space, time, and matter comes into being, God must be spaceless and uh, would argue, they would argue timeless. Now, some would say, you know, at the beginning of uh, the creation, that's when God entered into time. Uh, other people do not uh, do not hold that. Uh, but either way, um, I think it would be a good case that because space, time, and matter comes into existence, God himself would not have those properties. And the problem, obviously, would be is uh, if God is, you know, spatial and, and uh, temporal and material, uh, then something would have had to bring him into existence uh, because at one time those things uh, did not exist. And so... Uh, you know, it's very important that, uh, you know, we think through some of these implications because uh, that argument alone will uh, pretty much wipe out, uh, for example, I'm thinking of Hinduism, 330 million gods. And, uh, you know, to my knowledge, most of them are, are in space, time, and, and matter. And uh, so if you get... Uh, you get an argument that can demonstrate space, time, and matter uh, has not always existed, then um, you end up having to have a cause for that. And that's what the Kalam does. And so those are those are some good ways that um, some co the cosmological arguments can really get you right to the God of the Bible. I remember discussing this once with a professor uh, in school in regards to pantheism. And I'm, I'm I'm thinking I'm not positive I'll have to go back and check but I think Dr. Grotheis also has a uh, a thing on that dealing with pantheism and uh, he demonstrates basically because with pantheism you have uh, a god that is kind of two poles you know that uh, uh, immaterial and immaterial and that uh, pantheism. Uh, basically, the you know God is the universe, and the universe is God. Uh, but of course, I think it would have you know serious implications if the universe has not always existed. And um, I know there's different forms of pantheism, uh, but it would be interesting to look at, uh, at a more in-depth look at how the cosmological argument uh, would deal with things like pantheism. So I know I've been talking there for a little while, Melissa. Do, do you want to uh, say anything? I am working to get our guests on the phone. We are having some problems, so that is the issue. You keep talking, and I will work on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to keep rambling, folks. Uh, uh, sometimes when you're doing, you know, live radio, sometimes uh, sometimes things happen. And uh apologize about that. We are working on hopefully being able to get them. So uh, let's. I guess let me let me talk a little bit about the creation uh, evolution issue. Um, I'll, I'll say a few things. Uh, first, um, I, I would say this. I would say that um, uh, there has to be a lot of definitions in what we mean by evolution, because a lot of times what's happening is um, there's a there's a bait and switch tactic going on. We're hearing. Um, you know, 
uh, of course you believe in evolution. You see animals change. You see dogs change. Uh, obviously, animals are evolving. And uh, and what's happening is there's not really being a very good definition being set down of what you know what do you mean by evolution? Because the Darwinian theory is that um, all life forms trace back to a single-celled organism and ultimately uh, have a common ancestor, common ancestry. Um, so by that definition, I think that's that's where the debate really is. And sometimes it's been been uh, termed in the forms of micro and macro evolution. Uh, macro is this idea that uh, again you have these common ancestors. If you've seen the, uh, for example, if you've seen um, the, the illustrations in the biology textbooks um, with the, the tree and it's got the branches, and uh, basically they'll have the different species coming out to the different branches, and they say ultimately it goes back to uh, you know the single base of the tree, and then from that, that's where they all uh, came from. And so that, of course, is uh, is that is where that is where we're going to have serious issues. That is where I think there's going to be issues. One, biblically, there's going to be issues, and secondly, there's going to be issues. Uh, I think uh, you can easily challenge this on scientific grounds. But let me do this. Let's 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 take a look at the text uh, and see. And I want to be clear again. I'm not saying that uh, those who hold to uh, theistic evolution are not saved and they're not Christians. I'm not saying that. And I'll also say this. I'm not, I'm not even saying that if evolution is true that that disproves the existence of God because I don't believe that either. Uh, I think if you, again, if you look at, for example, the cosmological arguments, and what I gave was one, one form of it, the Kalam. Uh, there's also other cosmological arguments. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the, the argument from contingency, uh, the, uh, Leibniz, his uh, cosmological argument. Why is there something rather than nothing? So uh, there, there's other forms of the cosmological argument. But also as Melissa brought up the anthropic principle. You have the argument from design, right, of the universe. You see uh, the, the way that uh, certain uh, properties and uh, such in the universe is that we can even observe the universe as we see it. Um if you don't have the book On Guard, uh, that would be another one I would recommend. William Lane Craig has a has a whole chapter on that as well, dealing with the anthropic principle and the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, and then, of course, you have the origin of life. How does, how does life come? How does, how does uh, dead matter become live matter? How does, how does non-living material uh, become life? And what are the, you know, the qualifications, uh, the, 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 the minimal amount of information needed and um, I'm trying to think of, the, of the, the right word, but what is, what is the exact um, minimal set you can have to even have a cell that functions. So I would say, you know, based on just the cosmological argument, the anthropic principle, you know, the, the fine-tuning of the universe, and then the origin of life, you know, you have, you have serious issues before you even get to um, before you, you even get to uh, whether or not evolution can even take place. You have to have a creation first, or you have to have a you have to have a universe first, I should say. Um, second, you have to have life that can evolve. 
Uh, I remember William Lane Craig in his debate with uh, Frank Zindler. And uh, uh, Zindler was, you know, using uh, basically the argument from evolution uh, to say that uh, that that disproved the existence of God. And, uh, you know, Dr. Craig demonstrated, look, if you don't have the universe in such a way, you can't even get life. And then he gives these amazing statistics uh, which demonstrates that uh, uh, just for life to be able to uh, to, to evolve itself would be a, a greater miracle. And so, again, I, I want to just be clear. I'm not saying that uh, you cannot be a Christian and uh, and hold to evolution, although I do believe it is it is, has serious problems. Um, and I, again, I would also say even if evolution was true, it wouldn't it wouldn't somehow prove atheism. But uh, let's look at the text. Let's let's go to Genesis chapter one, and uh, and I can read that. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was with form without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. So this is kind of the first time we're seeing this this word kind being brought up. And uh, we'll see it's very important uh, in this discussion uh, because a lot a lot rides on this this word. Um, let's let's go on to verse 14. God said, "Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night." Uh, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars also. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good evening, morning, the fourth day. Now, the fifth day, this is where things start getting more interesting because we're starting to see um, living animals. I got to have a sore throat, so (laughs) I apologize if I I keep going in and out on you and having to take a drink. Uh, So verse 20 says, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves 
uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Um, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, morning, the fifth day. And then lastly, we get to day six. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock stock, and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, there is going to be even uh, differences and variations between the uh, the um, old earth camp and the young earth camp. And uh, the the young earth camp is going to hold, uh, again, to the word kind, and there there's a lot of study on that. You can go to creation.com or Answers in Genesis. You can read the articles, um, exactly what they mean by uh, the word kind and some of the, the tests that they're doing. Uh, to kind of see what the boundaries of that are. Um, the oldest creationists, I don't think, go to use that term, kind. I don't think they, they, they particularly like like that word. I'm um, not saying they you know, are rejecting the Bible, but I'm just saying as far as in a scientific sense. Um, but what, what, the, what the young earth creationists and the old earth creationists uh, are going to have in common, and there's different forms of old earth Creationism. I should I should probably talk about that for for a second. You have um, again your theistic evolutionists. Uh, these are the people that would say God created, uh, but He used uh, the means of evolution to do so. Uh, you have your uh, sometimes it's called the gap theory, and this is the view that uh, uh, God creates the universe, and in between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. There's a huge uh, expense, uh, expanse of time uh, that goes by, billions and billions of years. And uh, that, this is where the, the dinosaurs, this is where everything kind of falls into that. That view's not very popular um, today. That's kind of fallen out of, uh, pretty much fallen out of, of favor among, uh, among most of your scholars. Um, and then you have... Um, you have the framework hypothesis. Um, I'm not really sure exactly, though, uh, what what in detail what they believe. I haven't looked at that for a while, but that is another view. Um, but then you, you have what's probably the most popular today uh, in America, which is called uh, progressive creationism. And this would be the view held by uh, guys like, uh, well, Hugh Ross, uh, Reasons to Believe. They're probably the most prominent uh, group, uh, creationist group uh, today, um, and they would believe basically that um, it's six long time periods that God creates. They would hold to, uh, the, you know, the universe is billions of years old, they would hold to the Big Bang, and they would say that God created uh, these things in long uh, successive periods or ages and not necessarily literal days, which would bring up the last view um, which would be the young earth creationist view. And uh, this view, uh, you know, would be 
saying that God created everything in six literal 24-hour days, and it would reject uh, Big Bang cosmology, and it would do so. Um, I mean, they, they have scientific arguments, but also they would look at different things in the text. So those, those are all views that are, you know, hotly debated um, amongst Christians. Um, theistic evolution seems to be getting a little more ground. Uh, you have groups like uh, BioLogos, and uh, they're, a, they're a well-known group. And uh, they, you know, they're gaining some traction. Um, but I would say, pro- primarily, your your two your two groups that uh, are the most popular are going to be your your progressive creationists and your young earth creationists. I know I have been talking for a while, Melissa. Do you have anything to add? Um, I'm still working over here to get our guests, hon. Okay. <laughs> You're doing great, though. Yeah. Well. My voice is about to uh, to fall off, but that's okay. Those are basically the two primary views, and so, um, in, at least in America. But let's look at some of the some of the um, some of the issues that that, uh, that I think are very important that we need to make the the proper and correct distinctions on when discussing evolution. Uh, again, first the micro-macro variation. A lot of people don't like the term microevolution. I understand that. Um, but what that basically is, is it's describing variations. So, for example, I have a little a little, little pup, little dog named Oreo. He's a Shih Tzu. And uh, we have neighbors that have uh, all kinds of different dogs. We were over at our friends last night, uh, and they have a, a huge, like, 60-pound black lab and uh, what you have, with, let me give the kind of the young Earth creationist model. And I think the I think the I think the old Earth creationists, uh, the progressive creationists, I think would would agree with this um, as well. Uh, you have kind of going back to Darwin's tree of life. You have uh, the base, and then you have the branches. Uh, well, again, within Darwinism, they believe that uh, the branches go to the base. And uh, basically, again, you end up with common common ancestry. With the creationist, you'd have the base, but that would be the dog, for example, the dog kind, so to speak. And from the dog kind, um, when you're looking at the branches coming up, those would be the different um, types of dogs. So, for example, the Great Dane, the Chihuahua, the Shih Tzu, you know, numerous different different types of dogs but they're all going to come from the original dog kind. And there's nothing in Genesis that would preclude that. Now, sadly, um, you know, in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you had creationists that would reject this. They would hold to what would be called like the, the figs, uh, figs, can't say that word, but basically the, the, the species were fixed, right? So when Darwin, for example, uh, when Darwin, for example, would um, check out the finches and see the finches, and he's looking at the different finch beaks, uh, he's seeing, look, there's variation. You know, we can see uh, one particular uh, finch beak, um, it's it's bigger than the other, or one is smaller than the other. And uh, so he looks at that, and uh, through much study, um, 
and he basically he's, he takes um, the mechanism of natural selection and, uh, and mutations and sees, you know, there's a major difference here between these birds. And he was right to extrapolate uh, that uh, because uh, environment, because of certain conditions, um, that the, the, uh, the beak finch had, had evolved, it had changed. But again, we have to, uh, again, look at the, the, what do we mean by evolved, right? In certain climates, you have, um, for example, if it's if it's rainy, I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact example with the with the with the finches. Um, but if it, if it rained too much, you might have uh, softer uh, berries or nuts for the finches to be able to crack. Uh, if it was a drier season, the nuts and that might have been harder to crack. And so what happens is you have some finches that have that are going to need the long beach the long beaks in order to crack the uh, to crack the nuts in order to eat. And those that don't have the long beaks are not going to be able to crack the nuts and die. And so what happens is uh, those who have the long beaks, when they mate, they transfer their genes onto the young, and then you end up with a population of uh, finches that have long beaks. And, uh, you know, the the problem is, again, you know, people are, uh, some evolutionists are looking at it and they're saying, there you go, that's evolution, proof positive Revolution. When really all that's happened is is uh, adaptation, and so uh, and so that's that's kind of what's going on uh, with that. Um, that's what's uh, some of the problems with that. So just because there are some micro changes, we can't extrapolate that all the way to common ancestry. And I think a lot of times that is. Uh, what's what's going on? So we have to be have to be very careful about that. But uh, we actually have uh, have a caller, and I think I will let you, Melissa. I'll let you go ahead and take that caller. I need to rest my voice for a second. All right, let me go ahead and get it. Okay. How is it? Hi, Doctor Safadi. Yeah, sorry, I'm late calling in. I was uh, busy writing something, and, and the, the time um, got away from me. So sorry about that. I'm here now. We know that you're very busy, and we appreciate you coming on the air with us today. And sure. um, Dr. Um, just so that our, our audience know, I, I know that they all um, are aware of your work, but um, to those who are not, who, um, are not familiar with Dr. Serfati, um he uh, is a chemist. And he is a part of Creation Ministries International. And Devin uh, shared earlier how uh, CMI has been so fundamental in our growth and our understanding of God and his creation and just a ministry that we have grown to love over the years. Um, Dr. Safadi uh, grew up in New Zealand, was born in um, Australia, but has written several books that um, have truly helped us to grow. Um, Refuting Evolution 1 and 2. Um, he co-authored the Creation's Answer book, um, Refuting Compromise, and a book that we're going to discuss today on the air, um, uh, which is uh, titled The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Refuting Dawkins on Evolution, which is a response to uh, leading atheist Richard Dawkins' uh, book, um, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. 
So we are really excited to have you um, on the air with us, Dr. Shafati. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Absolutely. So, um, Devin, are you are you there after all that talking? Did you get some water? Yeah, I've been over here babbling like a buffoon for the last <laughs> 50 minutes. And I might so. get some water, too, if that's right, then. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I'm glad, uh, glad you're able to join us. What I thought oh, we would do, uh, Dr. <clears throat> Sarfati, is I have a clip of uh, Richard Dawkins uh, talking about uh, his book, The Greatest Show on Earth. And right. I figured I'd go ahead and play that clip, and uh, and then I'd like to get some of your response to that. You betcha, yep. The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. What is The Greatest Show on Earth? Well, it's life. The whole diversity of life, the complexity of life, the beauty of life, the sheer number of species that are all doing their own thing in their own way. How has it come about? By evolution, evolution by natural selection. The book is about the evidence for evolution. How do we know it's a fact? My previous books have all been about evolution, but not the evidence for it. They've just assumed that evolution is true. Why is this book necessary? It's necessary because, for example, in the United States, some 40% of the population doesn't believe in evolution, believes that the world was created within the last 10,000 years. That's an educational disgrace, and those people, the majority of them, couldn't possibly believe that if only they were exposed to the evidence. The purpose of my book, The Greatest Show on Earth, is to expose people to the evidence. We go through the sort of evidence that Darwin knew about from domestication, Dogs and cabbages, pigs and cows have all been changed in huge ways in a very short time, maybe a couple of centuries, maybe a couple of millennia. If that much change can be achieved in a couple of centuries or millennia, just think what could be achieved in 10 million years or 100 million years. That's the sort of timescale we have to play with in real evolution. How do we know that? We know it from radioactive dating and other kinds of dating systems. The book has a chapter on how we know how old fossils are. Fossils are not the most important evidence for evolution, although they are very persuasive. There's even more persuasive evidence from molecular comparisons of modern animals, from the geographical distribution of modern animals. The animals are just where you'd expect them to be if evolution had happened. Their relationships of the molecules, the genetic molecules in them, are exactly what you'd expect if evolution were true. Everything that we see in the world today is exactly what we would expect if evolution were true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I guess he's, he's got it down, doesn't he? Well, I mean, where do you begin with that sort of thing? I mean, one thing I noted in my own book, uh, Refusing Him, is, is how he basically admitted that his previous books had not proved evolution, yet for the longest time, uh, atheists were using his books as the best um, ev evidences for evolution around that. And he's admitted, no, they weren't evidences for evolution. He assumed evolution to be true. That's the first thing you notice. Um, then you notice how he's um, basically bluffing and bullying. Well, you've got 40% of... Americans who still believe the biblical account, and that's despite the best um, 
efforts of, of the government school system to indoctrinate in evolution and millions of years and right. there's no God needed. And sadly, a lot of the churches have um, basically um, capitulated to that view. Uh, so um, then, of course, he gets into the usual bait and switch because no creationist denies that things have changed. But the point is, is the change in the right direction to turn uh, bacteria into biologists or amoebas into anthropologists or prokaryotes into professors? Okay, it's not. That's a thing. It goes in the opposite direction. And no matter how long you leave this going, it's not going to produce that sort of uphill informational information increasing change right i think you're absolutely right and that's that's really the problem i guess before i i um before i jumped into that i should have asked uh, asked you asked you to uh tell us who who is richard dawkins and what what role has he played uh kind of in the whole uh, mm. atheism versus theism discussion Okay, well, he he was born in 1941. Um, he is uh, pretty. Um, he he really got onto the world uh, world famous with his bo- uh, book in the early 70s called The Selfish Gene. Even then, his atheistic evolutionism has come out. But uh, more recently, he's been known as a vociferous atheist as well as what I call the world champion Darwinist. He's the biggest uh, proponent of Darwinian style evolution, but he uses that to push um, a strongly atheistic anti-Christian worldview. Uh, like his, uh, one of his most infamous books is called The God Delusion. I mean, it's a load of rubbish. I mean, he doesn't know much about history or theology or philosophy, uh, and yet it doesn't stop him writing more about that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've called him the Apostle of Atheopathy because that's, he is so vociferous in his defense of atheism, although uh, in recent times, having seen the um, depredations of Islamo-fascist terrorists, he has realized that, well, maybe it's Christianity that's been a bulwark, uh, a bulwark against um, something far worse, in other words, Islamism, because the secularized um, nations of, um, of uh, Western Europe have not been able to stand up to uh, the challenge of Islamism, because secularism just can't provide that um, that bulwark against against that tyranny. That's right. There, there, I was reading. Uh, I'm going through your book. I just love it. Um, there's, I think it's in the introduction. You were talking about a debate that happened uh, because he just he he doesn't want to debate anybody that's actually knowledgeable in the field. Um, but I know you you were talking in your book about a debate that happened. I think it was in the 1980s with A. E. Wilder yes. Smith. Maybe right. Uh, Basically, A. Wilder Smith was one of the first um, creationists uh, that I came across in my uh, my beginning days as, as a creationist, as a big abundant creationist. He was the first sort of major creationist because he's got three doctorates, uh, three earned doctorates in science. He's no mug. Um, he's a, 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 a Englishman who lived in Switzerland. He's dead now, unfortunately. Um, but he. Um, and a leading material scientist in England, Edgar Andrews, another another a full professor, they debated uh, Dawkins and his mentor Maynard Smith. And they see the Oxford Union, the you know most prestigious university in England and the UK, has this prestigious debating 
uh, annual debate, the Oxford Union debate, and for this one it was this creation versus evolution debate and even though it's a fairly secular university type crowd and and Dawkins pleaded with them don't give a single vote to the creationists in fact they only had a very narrow victory because um, over 100 people recognized uh, out of about uh, um, 250 or 300 only 100 people recognized that the creationists had the better case Wow. After that, Dawkins has not wanted to debate knowledgeable creationists again. Like he comes to America and he debates people uh, like one of the leaders of, of I think, um, a conservative um, women's group. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but uh, she doesn't pretend to be a scientist. Right. But yet Dawkins brags about this um, dialogue with, with this lady. Uh, so that's the sort of a soft target, well, in his opinion, soft target that he picks on. He won't even debate Dinesh D'Souza, who's a knowledgeable Christian apologist, even though he's theistic evolutionists, but he's quite knowledgeable about other aspects of, of Christian apologetics, and Dawkins won't touch him either. Right, I know there was an event recently, well, not real recently, but within the last probably year or two with uh, with uh, William Lane Craig, who right. who uh, was trying to, doing everything he can to, get him to, to debate him, and uh, Richard Dawkins, the fact is so bad, even the atheists started calling him out, right? Well, I mean, uh, um, with possibly good reason, because um, he, Craig has debated lots of atheists, and, and um, even atheists have conceded that the atheists have never won a debate against Craig. But the thing is, what, what Dawkins was doing with Craig was something quite um, off-topic. He said, well, uh, Craig defends the authority of the Bible, which teaches that God um, commanded the Israelites to wipe out the wicked Canaanites and Amalekites, and, and Craig dared to believe the Bible account is accurate there. That's actually not a question of whether God exists, or but it's really a question, is God mean? Uh, at least in Dawkins' own uh, narrow impression of what meanness is. But it's not um, an issue about whether God exists or not. So it's a, a complete sideline. Um, Dr. Safai, uh, let's, let's jump into your book and look at some of the um, things that you discuss in the book to expose... Sure. Bad arguments of Dr. Dawkins. Um, in your first chapter, you uh, discussed the fallacy of bait and switch. Um, can yes. you explain what that is exactly and kind of, I guess, summarize? Um, I know it's okay. a lot of material, but kind of summarize how that fits into um, your refutation of Dr. Dawkins. Well, you see, bait and switch is where you use the same word in two different um meanings in the same argument so that's what you're basing them with a use of one word and then you're switching the meaning of that word so Dawkins is using a meaning of evolution which just means change over time which thing is no creationist ever disputes that change occurs over time but then of course he's going on to the idea that um, everything came from a single cell and that cell came from a primordial soup that's the general theory of evolution that is what the debate is about but by saying, well, these creationists deny evolution, you can see evolution in action because we're seeing things change. You see how he's baiting and switching the, the two different yeah. meanings of the word evolution there. And that's mm-hmm. a very dishonest practice, which evolutionists do quite often, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, Jeannie, Jeannie Scott, when I think right when someone had asked her uh, to define evolution or, or something to that effect, and, and yes. she came up back with something like, well, of course genes change or something. Something to that effect, right? Yeah. And the thing is, it's almost like uh, she believes that, cre- that the creations actually deny that genes change over time, which, of course, they don't do. But because of that bait and switch, uh, this lie is told to the school kids that somehow the, the, these ignorant creations deny that things change. Mm-hmm. 
That's right, and everything's kind of smuggled in under that word evolution. It's just everything. Mm. And the thing is, it was actually Charles Darwin, Charles Darwin's mentor, Charles Lyell, who was the leader in this old Earth propaganda. He was actually the one who pro, uh, to, who popularized this notion of fixity of species that species don't change. You see, that wasn't the creationist view; that was a the, the, the Lyellian uniformitarian view. But somehow, creationists have been tarred with that brush. Although historically, we never held that view. Absolutely. So um, let's, I mean, let's talk about natural selection a little bit here, sure. um, Dr. Sarfati. Um, uh, in terms of creationists, do we reject natural selection? And um, if not, um, how is natural selection actually a problem for the evolutionists? Well, okay, see, I believe that natural selection should not be rejected by creationists. In fact, creationists were discussing it before Darwin did. Now, the point is, see, natural selection says that some things do better and some things do worse. That's hard to dispute. I mean, uh, an example I give is uh, supposing you have um, dogs, you've got some with long fur, some with short fur. Now, if the weather gets colder, the ones with long fur are protected. The ones with cold, uh, short fur will die of exposure and not pass their genes on. So what you're doing there is you are selecting for increased fur length. But the point is you're not creating anything new. In fact, what you're doing is eliminating all the genes, the information that codes for short fur. So you can keep on natural selecting for millions of years. All you are doing is culling information. You're not creating information. That's what evolution requires is, is new genes, uh, new information, and not less and less, which is what we're seeing, we're seeing with natural selection. Right. So all the time, see, antibiotic resistance is another one. Like if you don't complete your antibiotic course, that's a little bit dangerous because what happens, the antibiotics will knock out most of them, but there might be a few stragglers who are a bit more resistant than the rest. Now, if they're the only ones around, they will multiply, and you need a colony of these, these germs which are now resistant to that antibiotic. But the thing is, what that's done is get rid of the genes, of the germs that don't have that resistance factor. Now, I was talking right before you had came on, uh, Dr. Sarfati, about uh, Darwin and um, with the with the the finches and the beaks. And right. maybe you can explain a little bit how natural selection um, just deals with that. Um, well, see, okay, what happens, you see, uh, there's probably genes, there. there's some genes that code for short uh, beaks and sh some being, uh, genes that code for long beaks. Uh, that's what, what I think happens. You, you have a mixture in the population that, that God has already created these different genes. Now, what is happening uh, with natural selection? If you've got an island with very hard seeds and nuts as the only food, what happens is they, uh, um, the, the birds with thicker beak, thick beak genes will be able to crunch those nuts and, and, uh, and they can eat, and the ones with thin beaks cannot crunch those nuts, and therefore they starve. So natural selection there is eliminating all the genes for thin beaks. But again, it's not creating anything new. It's eliminating um, one set of, of, uh, of genes from the population. And the point is, uh, when you're doing that, you're actually reducing genetic diversity, uh, and that has its own disadvantages, like uh, more inbreeding. It was a creationist, Edward Blythe, right, that had to uh, yes. first discover natural selection. I know a lot of people sometimes are 
surprised to hear that, but Darwin was kind of working off some of his uh, Edward Blythe's previous work. Yeah, that's the, that's been a common thing. And you see, not only Blythe, you've got people like William Paley, the famous uh, design uh, design specialist, um, uh, who you know, Darwin actually was was trying to refute William Paley, the, who wanted to prove God from design and nature. And um, in fact, Paley talked about natural selection. He didn't use the same words, but he, he definitely recognised that as a process that would actually help to. Uh, stop bad genes from propagating by eliminating their carriers so it preserved the fitness of the population so that they recognized that something like natural selection was going on yeah so with evolution it seems to be basically two heroes of the day uh, and that's natural selection and mutations and um, just maybe you could talk about two things one uh, sure. the, the limits of natural selection and second uh, Dawkins brings up this idea of the computer program Maybe you could talk about those those two things. Okay, well, see, the limits of natural selection is that natural selection, first of all, is blind. It has no foresight. So, you, so there's no point talking about, a, say, a dinosaur wants to become a bird uh, by growing wings in the special lung system it has because the, the natural selection can't see in advance. It can only uh, select what's good now, not what's good in the future. Uh, that's one thing. So there are quite a few different organs that we have. There are motors, there are navigation systems, there are pulleys and catapults that just don't work unless every single part is, is fully functional. But natural selection can't select for one part at a time because the part by itself has no advantage. And natural selection can't see in advance. It has no foresight to see that if you get enough of these parts, it's going to become quite useful. But natural selection is not able to do that. Okay. The other thing is there's a whole lot of chance involved. See, most of the genes we have are actually almost neutral. The mutation means a copying mistake. It's a typo, if you like, in the genes being copied. Now, imagine your word processor. You might type and it's got an automatic typo correction because you know very well a typo is going to make something worse. Uh, but it happens that most uh, typos are actually bad but not really bad enough to make it a, a difference. So what I have, natural selection can't notice that. It's such, it's a, such a tiny disadvantage that, that that natural selection can't notice it. But I, you think of rust on your car, you see, it might be a tiny spot now, uh, but if enough of those tiny spots uh, add up, then it's going to be uh, very bad structural damage and your car is no longer going to work, as opposed to a fairly big thing all at once and you can actually um, see it and you can, um, you can knock it out right away. See, natural selection can, can get rid of a very big change but it can't get rid of all these tiny little, little changes. And and considering, see, the humans every generation are adding up about 100 new mutations to their to the population. And natural selection cannot get rid of those, and that means that the human race is going dying out. And evolutionists have said, well, why aren't we extinct already? Because if, if you believe in millions of years, we should be extinct by now with all these mutations, and yet we're not extinct. Because we haven't been around that long. Right. Uh, Dawkins, as far as, because uh, you hear this with the with the monkeys and the typewriter or the computers, right. uh, okay. what, what, what's the argument they use for that and uh, how do you respond? Okay, now a few things there. You see, well, one thing I would like to say that uh, um, natural selection also cannot explain the origin of first life because natural selection means you are selecting something and then you can reproduce and pass on the information you're selecting. So 
until you have something that can reproduce, you can't have natural selection. And therefore, natural selection cannot explain where the first living thing comes from. And Dawkins um, has a real problem uh, working out where the first living thing came from. Okay, it's one thing. Um, now, the computer program, you see, what he's trying to do uh, with, his, say, his weasel program, he's trying to uh, duplicate what he thinks natural selection can do, so like one letter at a time and basically uh, get the target sequence uh, just by random mutation and then selecting uh, one, one right letter every at a time, and eventually you will get to that sequence. But the point is... Um, it's not going to work if you use realistic uh, figures. And also, you've got far too much uh, degeneration going on, too, which is not going to be... Um, natural selection cannot cope with the observed degeneration of of the uh, sequence as, as it gets copied. That's that's the other thing. Is that what you're asking now? I'll ask a few questions at once. What else do you want to know? Yeah, yeah, no, that yeah, that, that was it. I was just as I was going through through the chapter in that um how you talked about um how he brings up the computer programmer and then uh the monkeys and the typewriters and just uh, you know, basically if there's enough time and enough um you know, type people type it and then you could end up with 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 whole books and stuff like that by chance. Well, that's the thing you're not going to get, because um, uh, well, we've actually got realistic simulations of those sorts of things. In fact, there's a, a program called Mendel's Accountant by some very high-power geneticists and programmers who have shown that real values of mutation and natural selection are just not going to produce that sort of thing. It's going to degenerate rather than uh, 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 get you a book. Absolutely. And um, also in that chapter on natural selection, Dr. Sarfati, you discussed um, some of Mike Behe's work um, yes. in terms of, edge of um, the edge of, of evolution. Right. Um, can you explain why that's so important in discussing? Uh, yeah, Behe was uh, as an expert on, on the malaria parasite, you see. Um, and there are various ways that humans can cope with the malaria parasite. You see, you've got certain um, anti-malarial drugs that will kill the germ. Now, Sometimes you see that the drug is actually targeting a certain thing on the germ, and if the germ does has a mutation, a copying mistake, then that target is no longer the same target. Now, it may, the germ is probably not better off. In fact, it's probably worse off because the, 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 the change has done something to make the germ worse, but the, and the drug can't, can't kill it anymore. And the thing is, if there's only one uh, mutation required, then it's going to be a certain amount of time, and then the, the germ will become resistant to the drug. But the thing right. is, there's one drug called chloroquine, and it turned out that you needed two independent changes before something could become uh, resistant to it. And it took far longer for the germ to become resistant. But the thing is, malaria reproduces really, really rapidly. It's a germ. It doesn't. We not every twenty years like we are. Mm. Um, and it, yet, even then, all it could do was get two mutations by chance. Right. Just two mutations. Now, when you think of of trying to build a motor like the ATP synthase motor, the tiniest motor in the world, two changes is not going to do that because you need um, millions of different changes. In right. coordination to produce something like a motor, right. so two changes is about all you're going to get. Even with the the best possible conditions, the best possible conditions is what the the malaria germ has, and that can only get two mutations by chance. Right. So that's what he says is the edge of evolution. Now mm -hmm. animals 
like humans, which are reproducing every 20 years or 30 years or whatever, um, there's no way we're going to produce something as complex as, as language and the opposable thumb and the upright posture in, in only five million years because there's a, you just cannot get the, the right number of changes. I mean, two at once um, two ch- is, is almost beyond the capacity, let alone uh, the millions of changes required for humans to exist. Right. So even with all the time that, that they uh, presuppose, it's still uh, not sufficient to uh, to account for the changes that they would need to take place. Um, That's and, right. And, yeah. Um, what about a, a, another thing that Dawkins brings up in, in this common uh, so-called proof revolution is human and chimp, chimp DNA similarities. Um, why are, are human and chimps, uh, why, why is our DNA so similar, and is that a proof for evolution? Well, first of all, I mean, there's actually a bit of a myth going around uh, that the, the humans and apes are only 1% different. In fact, the difference is a lot more than that. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. even, I, think I mentioned that in my book, that in fact the, the actual similarities are nowhere near as, 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 um, as close as Dawkins seems to think. And you see, even 1% similarity, you think that we've got 3 million letters or about 3 gigabytes of information, so 1% is still 30 million changes. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that is a huge difference to account for. Now, the other thing is I found recently that the Y chromosome, which makes maleness, is actually very, very different from the chimp Y chromosome, which is not what they predict from evolution. So so when they talk about similarities, they're obviously not considering the Y chromosome because that really puts a, a, a wrench in their ideas. <laughs> okay, so the other thing is, though, that, I mean, there is some similarity because we've got a common designer. It's not because we have a common ancestor, but because we have a common creator. That's why, why, for instance, the Porsche and the VW have a lot of features in common with their engine because they had the same designer. Right. It's it's amazing how that's not that is just dismissed as not even a option <laughs> with the evolution. Well, the that's the thing that they present. They're, 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 they're arguing from errors, but in fact they're actually arguing from presuppositions. They have assumed that there's no God, and therefore uh, he's, uh, God is inadmissible uh, as, right. a, as a possible answer. And then they try and make up they've proven this. Well, in fact, they've assumed it to start with. Right. Uh, let's, let, me, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Sarfati. Sure. It's probably important. Um, in Chapter 2, you do uh, a whole chapter on species and kinds. Yes. And it seems like this is really an important part of the debate is the, the, the terminology. Right, right. Um, yeah, ex- explain, and, and, be, and maybe you could also explain what is the, the difference in the views um, even amongst, uh, like, your old earth creationists and your young earth creationists on, on species. Because I hear sometimes old earth creationists will accuse young earth creationists of believing in more evolution than Richard Dawkins. So maybe yeah. you could kind of explain that. Well, first of all, you see the word. There, there is a word, uh, a phrase in the in Genesis one. It says that things would reproduce after their kinds. Ten times it's said after their kinds. Now the point is, uh, some people have thought that kind is equal to what is now called a species. But in fact, that the species, the kind is a much broader thing than a species. Now, if we say that that things will reproduce among their kind and not outside the kind, well, in fact, we have 
plenty of examples of things actually crossing uh, of of hybridizing you know different like a liger a tiger and a lion a different species and yet they can reproduce they can actually produce a a, a, um, ti- a tigon and a liger and the females of those can have a further babies so in fact it seems that they are all one created kind but they're, they're called two different species. Um, in fact, if you go to Hawaii, you can look at the, this, this creature called the wolfin because you actually have a hybrid between a, a, a false killer whale and a, and a bottlenose dolphin. Now, that they're supposed to be different genera, not just different species, but different genera, and yet they produced the wolfin, and the wolfins had um, calves of her own. Wow. You see, that's why I think, see, here's a, the kind is as big as what uh, modern biologists call the family. It's bigger than the genus, you see. So when you're thinking of um, of, of um, fixative species or something I don't believe, a fixative kind is quite a, a much broader thing, and that's what I'm not seeing is things um, going past their kind boundary. And, in fact, you, you can actually um, get a rough idea of what the kind boundary is by seeing how what, how far they can hybridize and in fact you know with cats you can actually trace a line uh, from uh, the, the huge tiger uh, down to the small domestic cat there are hybridization links all the way through which implies that they're all one basic created kind and if yeah, split one up, of the uh, oh go ahead I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off that's the thing is, when people like Hugh Ross say that creationists are believing in evolution, they're again going into the bait-and-switch idea, again reproducing the Dawkins idea that, that any variation is evolution. And that's just not true. It's actually quite dishonest to, to say that we are believing in evolution because we do not believe that, that everything came from a single cell and that single cell came from a primordial soup. We don't believe that, but we believe that, that, that there's a lot wider variation than, than people like Hugh Ross would, would let, leave us to believe and what uh, Charles Lyell, the, the first old Earth creationist, uh, believed, basically. So would, would the old Earth creationists, then they would, they would, I guess they would say that God... Uh, created different species, right? Yeah. Uh, during the, the six long periods of time that he he created species, they wouldn't they wouldn't go for the word kind, right? Well, I mean, it's a bit crazy because I mean, the thing is, the the kind boundary is is defined by uh, by whether they can reproduce across the kind. You see, so, but the thing is, we do have proofs of different species um, mating with each other. Yet the Bible says that no kind can mate with another kind with a different kind. So I think they've got, a, they've got a problem because if they believe that a kind of the species, they're actually they have to believe that the species, the kind boundary can be crossed. Right. And that has the implication: well, could, could a, a human um, mate with an ape? You see, because um, if they believe that kind boundaries can be crossed, where, where do you stop it? Where do you stop? Where do you draw the line? Right. And and it's something I guess that can be shown. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, with with the scriptures, but also uh, I think just the scientific evidence kind of kind of shows that as well. But one of the arguments that often comes up with this um, is uh, the issue of Noah's flood, and you hear guys right. like P.Z. Myers and and Dawkins uh, and uh, you know, even old Earth creationists use this as an argument of of um, Noah's flood. Kind of explain that and then uh, respond to it. Okay, well, the thing is, I mean, the Bible, I mean, which is God's word, uh, clearly believes, uh, teaches a global flood. And Jesus himself accepted the flood as a real event. You look at Luke chapter 17, he clearly accepts the flood as real, Noah as a real person, the ark as a real uh, boat, which is more like an ocean liner, really. So the thing is, Jesus believed the flood, so do I. Okay, that's, that's, I'm a Christian, I believe what he believed. 
that should be was axiomatic. Now, uh, yeah. as far as uh, and also, I mean, the Apostle Peter said that so there'll be scoffers who will be willfully ignorant of the fact that you know, God created the world out of water, but He also destroyed the water, the world by water. You see, and, and people have no excuse for their unbelief. Now, as far as evidence for that, is, are you asking for evidence for this um, this cataclysm? Are you? Well, I'm um, just wondering how. Uh, well, I guess you you pretty much responded. Uh, I guess uh, how that uh, how they do respond. But, you know, when they're saying that, um, um, basically, how would you get all the animals on the ark because there's oh, you know, yeah, a certain yeah. amount of millions of species and. Oh yeah, I've written a couple of articles on the creation dot com is our website. Just so you, so your readers know creation dot com. I hope your, your your listeners will remember that. I know. Uh, now I've written articles. Sorry. I'll, I'll make sure I, I put a link on our uh, Facebook page and, and point oh, people nice. right there to it. Oh, uh, great! Yeah, now I've, I've I've responded to critics of the ark, uh, and of course one other thing is that they they really overload the number of species. But as I said, it's only a matter of the number of kinds because you have to take a, a pair of, of uh, you know um, ducks, swans, and great danes, and chihuahuas, cocker spaniels, and lab retrievers. All those things. It's just one pair of wolves. All you need to cope with the, all the different varieties of dogs. So first of all, the number of, of kinds is much smaller and probably only in, the, in about a, a couple of thousand, at the most about 16,000 animals on board. Um, another thing is no marine creatures are necessary because you don't need to, to rescue marine creatures from a flood. They can handle it quite well, thank you. And the thing that plants didn't need to be rescued because they uh, they can break up and, and form floating vegetation mats and things. And in fact, seeds will germinate um, after submersion. I mean, Darwin himself showed this. That's a, that's a strange thing. Darwin himself inadvertently showed the flood could happen by by, sh- by showing that seeds would germinate after being immersed in brine for months. And he showed that snails could float on driftwood for for months on end. You see, so again. He showed that these little things could actually survive off the ark, but the, the big creatures could not, the big animals, land animals could not. But the thing is, you don't need that many species, the many kinds on board the ark. And then when it comes to feeding them, I mean, it's not too, not very high tech to actually just have a feeding station and, and, and grain being poured down into, into troughs and feed lots of animals all at once and a watering station doing the same thing. Um, you have uh, Dutch farmers uh, for centuries have left their animals in winter because they, they invent something called a, a pot style, um, which is just a place that the animal stays there the whole winter and it's got very deep um, hay and all the waste products just get buried underneath the hay and it's actually quite fresh smelling for months on end. You see, the, the Dutch farmers have known how to keep animals for long periods of time. So there's no reason to think that Noah couldn't have done the same thing. The technology is not that difficult. Right. So, I mean, all the uh, the, uh, the uh, attacks on the ark, um, and also the ark was an incredibly stable boat. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's uh, almost impossible to capsize. You could have a tsunami-sized wave, and it would not cap- capsize the ark. That's how stable it was. Yeah, J- J- John Whippermore has wrote uh, Noah's Ark: A Feasibility Study. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, answers a lot of these questions, but uh, I'm gonna we'll go ahead and open up the phone lines uh, if anybody has sure. uh, any questions. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Sure, you'd like to be able to talk with Dr. Sarfati. And uh, go ahead, Melissa. Yeah. I know you had some questions. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Lots of questions. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Let's let's um. Let's Let's do chapter six. Chapter yeah, chapter six. yeah. I was I was gonna go there. Um, the cha- the chapter on homology. Um, right. Discuss what the homology argument is, um, Doctor Stefani. Um, yeah. The, the case for what they claim to be case for evolution. Well, we sort of had discussed that already. Actually, the the common genes are, is a, is a sort of homology argument. And the point of homology means you've got um, certain features that are in common across lots of different uh, varieties of animals, for instance. And they believe that the, that the reason for the common features is because they inherited from a common ancestor. But I said, well, uh, in many cases, um, it's the explanation they came from a common designer using the same uh, basic plan or module and making a variety of creatures with that basic plan. And, and there are certain things in the homology argument which, which just don't make sense um, with the evolutionary idea because some of these... Um, now, okay... If they inherited from a common ancestor, they would be controlled by the same genes. Mm-hmm. So you'd expect common genes to produce a common homology, homologous structure. But in many um, cases, in fact, the homologous structures are controlled by completely different genes. So they couldn't have been inherited by a common ancestor. The, the, the genetics actually right. um, spoils the homology. And, and also, um, since all of us grow from embryos, and there's a certain the genes that work that 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 plan the way the embryo develops. Now, so you'd expect, again, if the homologous structures uh, came from a common ancestor, that they'd develop in the embryo in the same way. But once again, often the embryonic um, development of these structures is quite different. Like, for instance, the, the, the frogs and humans have the five-digit pattern, uh, but the, the humans, are, um, what happens is that you have the hand growing, and then you have tissue being dissolved between the hand, between the fingers. So, you, so first of all, the hand, then tissue dis- dissolves. But with a frog, it's just a matter of, of the fingers growing outwards. So again, a completely different way of producing the five-digit pattern. And then they say, well, it came from a common ancestor, but the common ancestor they point to is something like Ichthyostega, which didn't have five fingers. It had about seven or eight fingers. And yes, surely it would have have had a five finger. That's the ancestor of all these things which have five fingers, but the ancestor has has seven fingers. Something is a bit strange there. Yeah, definitely. Taking taking a break just for a second from the the book, uh, Dr. Serfati, one of yes. the arguments uh, a lot of times that uh, atheists will bring up is um, uh, basically if you're raised in a certain culture or raised in a certain place, and that's that's what you're going to believe, and you can be wrong about all kinds of things. I wanted to play a short clip by uh, a talk actually Richard Dawkins did here in uh, Charlotte at Queen's University. Uh, me yep. and Melissa and about 20 other uh, Christians went into this place, and uh, it was it was full of uh, of atheists, and uh, they were all there to hear their <laughs> their hero preach to them. And uh, this is one of the questions. This this young lady actually uh, was, I think, the director for Campus Crusade, and this is uh, the question that she had asked. This is probably going to be the most simplest one for you to answer, but what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm wrong? I mean... Anybody could be wrong. We could all be wrong about the flying spaghetti monster and the pink unicorn and the flying teapot. Um, You happen to have been brought up, I would presume, in the Christian faith. 
you know what it's like not to believe in a particular faith because you're not a Muslim, you're not a Hindu. Why aren't you a Hindu? Because you happen to have been brought up in America, not in India. If you've been brought up in, Indo in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were brought up in, in um, Denmark in the time of the Vikings, you'd be believing in Wotan and Thor. If you were brought up in, in classical Greece, you'd be believing in, in Zeus. If you were brought up in Central Africa, you'd be believing in the great juju up the mountain. I mean, there's no particular reason to pick on the Judeo-Christian God in which by the sheerest accident you happen to have been brought up and, and ask me the question, what if I'm wrong? What if you're wrong about the great juju at the bottom of the sea? <laughs>
Dr. Sparty, one of the things that we really appreciate you um, as a creationist is that you are such a thinker. And um, actually today I was just reading an article of yours, um, Loving God with All Your Mind, um, Logic and Creation. And um, I was just really, it was a great article. And maybe you can talk about that. Um, De- like Devin said, we were at that that um, talk that Dawkins did, and it was it was very, it was like a, an evangelistic crusade almost. Um, yeah. And it was very hostile. The environment was very hostile. Um, it was uh, very antagonistic towards us as Christians. And um, it, but it was clear that no one there was really thinking about what Dawkins was saying or or really critically assessing his points. Um, uh, but, but yeah, go ahead and, and dis- discuss, maybe summarize your article, Loving God with All Your Mind, and why that's important as cre- um, creationists that we do uh, employ the tools of logic and reason. Well, actually, I wrote that article some time ago. Where, I mean, yeah. I think 14 or years ago, but I think it's one of the most important articles I've written, actually. I of agree. all the 100-plus, uh, 400-plus articles I've written, that is probably one of the most important, I think. I mean, in fact, one of my colleagues basically uh, came to Christ largely because of seeing this article um, and realizing you don't have to throw your brains away to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. first of all, is that God, um, Jesus, is called the Logos. Now Jesus is God incarnate. He is God who took human human flesh and died for our sin. But He is called the Logos. So therefore, we create, um, people who are made in God's image should also be thinking logically, because that would be thinking like God is to think logically. And that's so important to actually understand the rules of logic, because you can show um, first of all that the Christian faith is logical. You can show that Jesus used relentless logic to destroy His opponents' arguments. And we can see how the atheist arguments often end up in logical contradictions and self-refutation. And it, but it's so important to actually understand the, the, at least the basics of, of logical arguments. Right. And I think there's a bit of a, an irrationality in some parts uh, of the wider Christian world, and that they somehow think that logic is somehow uh, an optional extra when it definitely is not. That, that all Christians should be able to think logically, and you see that. And that's, if you don't think logically, then you're going to be prey to the emotional arguments of people like Richard Dawkins, who is using basically uh, emotion and ridicule and, and absolutely no logic there. Mm-hmm. And I think that he plays off of that a lot. Is this he tries to stir up an emotional response by yes. such inflammatory, derogatory, offensive things about our faith, which he knows that we take very seriously. Um, and it does. Be, if you don't know how to defend and think through what he's saying, it is very easy to get caught up in the emotions of it all, um, and 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 to to be um, ineffective in really addressing and, and tearing apart what he is actually saying. Yeah, I think one thing is often to to, uh, to show uh, up the, the the opponent's foundation is actually uh, undercutting. Like he wants to say God is evil and mean, but under his own worldview, there's no basis for the idea of evilness and meanness. Right. That's an evolutionary dog-eat-dog world. There's no such thing as right and wrong, and he says that elsewhere, but then he wants to actually say God is evil. Mm-hmm. But he can't justify where evil comes from. Is he? What I mean about self-refutation, he's cutting off the branch he is sitting on by invoking the concept of good and evil, which his own view, worldview does, does not provide. Mm-hmm. And other people who say, well, there's no such thing as truth, well, you ask them, is that statement true? Hmm. <laughs> and one uh, Jehovah's <laughs> Witness said, don't use the word Trinity, you only use words that are found in the Bible. I pointed out that the word Bible is not found in the Bible. <laughs> 
Chapter uh, Chapter Seven in your book, uh, talking about the, the fossils. Um, maybe you could kind of explain wh- what is the geological column, and um, hmm. yeah, wh- what is the geological okay, see, geological column? column is, there's one thing I should say that there is a, a bit of uh, of um, variation in creation of thought about geology. I think there's less about biology and chemistry and. and uh, uh, exegesis than there is about the geological column. Now, what it seems to be, there it does seem to be a certain sequence of creatures to some extent. Whether it's a, a, as extensive as the textbooks say is quite another matter, but it does seem to be some sort of sequence. And then the, the thing is, how did this? If there is a sequence, how did the sequence get produced? That's one thing. And I think the flood actually explains part of that because a flood it, it erupted in the oceans first, so you'd expect it to bury the deep ocean things. The mar- I mean, so 95% of, of fossils are the marine shellfish. And then it would bury fish next. It would bury them. then the things on the boundary of the land and the sea. The amphibians would be hit next. So you got a general order uh, predicted by the, the way the flood would successively bury things. It's not a sequence of age. It's a sequence of burial by the flood. The other thing about the fossil record is that the fossils of different of all the different groups appear abruptly. There's nothing to link one group changing into another. That's what we don't see in the fossil record, which Darwin realized we don't see, but his theory said we should see, is one is a chain linking one kind of creature to another kind of creature. That is just not there. And right at the bottom of the fossil record in the Cambrian, the, what the, they call the Cambrian period, I mean, you've got these major groups called phyla, the biggest, almost the biggest group you have, different animal phyla appearing already fully formed. Again, no lead up to them, no um, species splitting off and then genuses, uh, genera splitting off and families. Uh, they just appear fully formed in these, these, these widely diverse uh, types of, of creatures. And, and without any ancestry of them. And, and Dawkins really doesn't have a good answer to that. And evolutionists have long thought that, that to be a problem. So the fossil record actually is, is, is quite a great harm to, uh, to evolutionists. And even the fact of yeah. fossils existing, because how do you get a fossil? I mean, if you want to form a fossil, well, you're not going to leave the thing um, sitting and rotting because it'll rot away, the scavengers will get to it. The only way you're going to get a fossil is if you bury something really quickly so it's protected from the scavengers and then you've got enough minerals to produce the, the rocky material the, the mineral that the fossil is replace the uh, organic matter so you require rapid burial to create fossils now you think of how much water would be required to bury um, a group of dinosaurs which we do find you're thinking of an enormous amount of water required to, 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 to wash these uh, huge creatures into a basin and then cover them up with enough mud to, to bury them and then to fossilize them. The fossils themselves are very good evidence of catastrophe in Earth's past and not for the slow and gradual changes that, that Darwin thought. Also, I was, I was thinking along with that, too, uh, the Cambrian explosion, right? I mean, that was also uh, something that would seem to really argue against uh, Dawkins' view of uh, gradualism. Oh, it does. It does yeah, because that, that is the antithesis of gradualism. You've got the, the abrupt appearance of all these different kinds, and that that is not gradualism because gradualism you see branching uh, of ancestral forms up to reach these things. We're not seeing that, so that's a very big problem. That's right at the so-called beginning of, of the fossil record. 
Right, that's right there, and then it's uh, such uh, such soft-bodied animals too, right? Not just dinosaurs, but you have sponges, brachiopods, uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's oh. uh, those things as well, yes. But in fact, the Cambrian has has quite advanced things like the trilobites, with with one of the most sophisticated eyes in, in all history. Incredibly advanced eye structure. You've got the anomaly cars with with this gigantic compound eye, bigger than almost everything we have today. So the, again, these things um, appear fully formed with very elaborate structures, uh, and yet where's the evolutionary ancestor of the of the simple forms, simpler forms leading up to them? <laughs> Gotta love evolution. Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the videos that uh, I had watched a while back that just blew me away it was one of the best videos I thought I'd saw was uh, the one with Dr. Steve Austin in Mount St. Helens. And right. uh, he talked about the, the polystrat fossils. Maybe you could talk mm. a little bit about Mount St. Helens, polystrat yeah. fossils, and kind of how that all ties in with uh, with the flood and catastrophism. Oh, Mount St. Helens is a fascinating thing. I'm not sure how far away you live from it, because in, in Washington State, about 30 years ago, a bit over 30 years ago, this mountain erupted. And so many things happen that give so much um, evidence for the flood because that's a very minor uh, explosion, yet it created these um, uh, huge uh, canyons. I mean, not not like the Grand Canyon, but still huge canyons were created in days and years and not millions of years. So you see enormous erosion, providing you have lots of water. You don't need lots of time. That's one thing it, it showed. Then you have the, the, the fossil forests, you see, because evolutionists have thought the fossil forests would prove that they must have been buried really slowly, but in fact, once in Helens showed that their logs could have been uh, stripped from somewhere else, washed in, and then uh, the logs first of all float, but then the rootin will will soak up water, and the ro- the, the, the the tree will will dip down root first, and 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 sink down to the floor. So it looks like it's been it was buried standing, but it wasn't. And the fossil forests, and likewise, they've got no roots and things like that. You see, again, it's quite clear it's been washed into place. It has, it, it didn't grow there. There's no roots or soils um, of, uh, that would show that it grew somewhere. Okay. Then you've got um, other f- uh, things like, um, even though it was a devastating, uh, devastating for the environment, it didn't take that long for the environment to, to-, to completely recover. You see, so again, we have this worldwide flood and, and-, and the PZ Myers and people, well, how could the, the-, the Earth require- recover from such a thing? But the mountain Helens showed it doesn't need to-, to-, to be very very long before you get a full recovery of the ecosystem after the- such an eruption. Now, you asked me about polystrate fossils too, right? Right, uh-huh. Okay, the thing is, the polystrate means many layers, you see. You see, uh, the evolutionists believe that it's sort of one very fine layer per year, and so you've got these these, uh, huge numbers of layers. They believe it took millions of years to form these layers, but then you've got tree trunks going through all the different layers. So if the bottom of a tree was was buried first and the top wasn't buried for millions of years later, well, what would happen to the top of the tree being exposed to the elements for millions of years? Right. It's not gonna lie. Wouldn't you love to have timber that was so stable it could last millions of years exposed to the element? You make a, you make a fortune yeah. if you could find timber like that, but you don't. You're not gonna find that. Um, I mean, that shows that the, the whole tree must have been buried before it had a chance to rot. So you're talking about burial in a matter of years, not millions of years. And and you get polystrate fossils all around the world. You got them in, in the the coal fields of Wales, you have them in uh, South America, you have them in North America, you see they're all around the world, again, showing that layers were buried really, really quickly, and, and not 
uh, slow and gradual millions of years between the layers. It just doesn't work that way. And there's a lot of a lot of fossils that are like you say that are that are like that as well. So it's, it was when I watched that it was one of the uh, one of the most powerful um, videos I had ever saw for the flood. In fact, uh, me and Melissa, our students at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, the school of Dr. Geisler had founded, and uh, one of the professors uh, in our Genesis or in our Old Testament class actually showed that uh, that film. It, oh, was, nice. it was really, really awesome, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, how about the, the missing links? Melissa, did you want to ask a, a couple of those questions in Chapter 8? Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and by, the way, folks, by the way, folks, all this stuff is, is in this book. So everything that we're going over, I mean, if you want a more detailed response, it's it's all in this book. I just can't recommend the book enough. It's just it's amazing. But mm-hmm. that Melissa. Yeah, um, I know Deb and I recently went to the zoo, and one of the exhibits, of course, in the bird house was an entire exhibit on um, uh, dinosaur into birds. And I kind of wanted to discuss that because I thought how misleading um, and how many children are exposed to this error, this gross error. So did, in fact, birds come from dinosaurs? Okay, now that's probably one of the uh, topics I've written about more than almost any other topic, actually. I don't know, I mean, because it became so, it was so popular for so so long, uh, and it's, all, it's so dogmatically held that dinosaurs turn into birds. But there's so many different things wrong with it. When I mean, one thing is they've got no answer for where the where the feathers came from, because uh, feathers are such a, a finely uh, aerodynamic structure, and dinosaurs don't have anything like that. That's that's one thing. The feather is a big problem. And then the so-called feathered dinosaurs. It seems that the what they had there was was it was not feathers, but a a a, a skin crest. It was clearly a, a single structure, not multiple feathers. See, that was a, that was published uh, last year or year before that. So, you, so the so-called feathered dinosaurs don't have feathers, but a skin crest is what they really had there. Um, the other thing is dinosaurs had very uh, a lot of weight on their, their hindquarters, but the birds have to get the weight off the hindquarters. They've got to try and save weight. You see, the dinosaurs have the wrong weight distribution for something which has to fly. That's the other thing. It's just not going to get off the ground with such a... And in fact, they, they, they have to have a heavy hindquarters so they can run fast like they, they do. Uh, so get the weight off the hindquarters, you're also going to ruin their, their, their running speed. That, that's, that's another thing. Um, and then, then there's also the problem of their very distinctive lung structure. You see, our, the reptile lungs and uh, the mammal lungs um, are a bellows structure. The air goes in and it goes out again like, like, a, like bellows. Okay. Now, birds have a different lung system that is, in fact, a, a one-way system. The air goes through tubes the lungs are actually a set of tubes, and you've got these system of air sacs and, and the valves, which make sure the air, the air goes one way through the tubes and blood goes the other way and and extract as much oxygen as possible. It's a very efficient design, but totally different from what the dinosaurs and other reptiles had. And to go from one to the other, you see, again, natural selection can't see ahead and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if we could get this, this fully developed avian lung system? It just can't do that. It, it just says, well, what, about, what can I do now? Oh, let's get a hole in my lung. But a hole in my lung, mm. lung that's a, a serious condition. You, the, the animal will die. Right. So, so to go from one to the other uh, is a problem. And yet I see I've um, read some extremely 
erudite books on bird evolution by Alan Fiducia, and he doesn't even touch the problem of how the avian lung got to, came to be. Mm. They really haven't got, got any answer. And, and the thing is also, um, to support the, the air sac system, the, the bird's leg, the femur, the thigh bone, has to be fairly rigid. Uh, but the dinosaurs had very movable thigh bones. You see, the, so the movable thigh bones in a dinosaur is incompatible with the avian-type uh, lung system as well. So again, there's so many um, strikes against this dinosaur bird theory, um, and yet it's been promoted very dogmatically by certain um, by certain people, even to the stage where National Geographic actually um, published this forgery called Archaeoraptor. Uh, which is a piltdown bird. I mean, it's a complete forgery, but that was given front-page news of proof of a dinosaur turning into a bird. Mm. <coughs> um, one of the things I was wondering, maybe you could explain uh, the uh, incipient stages and uh, how that's that's a problem for the uh, transitional forms. I mean, you, I'm assuming you're, you're talking about uh, how uh, a new organ has to get started by something, right? And, uh, yeah, and half, the incipient half stage. Wing, half, yeah. yeah. The thing is, the incipient, natural selection can't, again, it doesn't have foresight. If the uh, incipient stage isn't good for flying, natural selection is not going to, to, to select for it. In fact, the incipient wing might get in the way. It might be something that would actually be a hindrance, you see. So, again, an incipient avian lung would be a hole in the lung, which would be uh, a very dangerous condition. An incipient uh, wing would not fly. Uh, an incipient eye would not see. You've got to have certain minimal complexity before the organ can even get started uh, with a function. And therefore, natural selection cannot get that get past that because you can mm-hmm. only see uh, basically see what the animal is like now. It can't see what it might be like millions of generations from now. Right. Uh, let's look at maybe the uh, the fish to tetrapod and um, right. and tiktalic, and then I definitely want to cover cover whale evolution. So we've got okay. about seven minutes. Seven right. minutes. Okay. Now, you see, you've got the, the, the tiktalic, I mean, because they've got this problem of trying to get fish turning into amphibians, which means you've got the swimming uh, um, anatomy turning into this uh, walking anatomy. And the thing is, again, is that, that uh, the um, walking requires this uh, very muscular pelvic girdle to support the muscles for uh, for walking. And they thought at one time the coelacanth, they thought that was extinct. They thought that might have been an ancestor. But when they actually found a living coelacanth, it was nothing of the sort. It was a very deft uh, swimmer and the so-called... Um, uh, incipient legs were actually very good um, fins for uh, very, very sharp turning. So nothing to do with walking at all. And again, the, the, the tiktalic, again, has a, a few problems. Like for one thing, when they do the a, a so-called transitional series, it actually depends on which feature you choose. Um, because you could choose the head and, and the series looks one thing. You choose the, 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 le- the leg structure, and it's a different series, which means, well, the, see, you, can, you can't, legs don't evolve into, into more advanced legs. It's, it's the animal as a whole that, that, that's supposed to evolve. Uh, and yet the evolutionary patterns are in conflict with each other. And then uh, they realized that you've you got uh, things called homoplasty, which is actually a, homolo- a so-called homology, which can't be a homology. It's actually a common feature that can't be explained by common ancestry. And then they found these footprints of the tetrapods. Now, by the evolutionary dating of these footprints, uh, it showed that things were walking 
millions of years before Tiktaalik, which was supposed to be the ancestor of walking things. Now, I don't believe the dating methods, but I'm just saying, well, according to their own dating methods, you've got uh, walking things before the ancestor of walking things was supposed to evolve. Wow. So how, how wow. can that be? Yeah, that's a major problem. Man, mm-hmm. grandfather can't be younger than his grandchildren. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whale evolution. I, I had recently listened to a discussion with uh, Geoff, I guess his name Jeff or Geoff Simmons, and PZ Myers uh, on this. Oh, and, um, okay. Yeah, PZ Myers is just not a very nice man. He's very <laughs> foul. Uh, he very, yeah, he is. He is very. Someone he's like, like an over over hormoned uh, teenage boy more than a, than a, uh, the mature man he's supposed to be because he's foul mouthed and, and vicious and and, and and nasty and not, not a very deep thinker in my opinion really. Uh, but sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I give you an amen to that. Uh, whale evolution. He was uh, he was really confident uh, that uh, the the fossils uh, demonstrated whale evolution. That's Wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I mean, again, whales are such a such a different type of creature from a mammal. And you see, when I wrote my first book, Refuting Evolution, they thought mesonychids were the ancestors of whales, and they they proved it because you've got, got these homologies again. But then they, the geneticists say, well, no, it can't be the mesonychids. It has to be the artiodactyl. So all the dogmatic stuff they said about the mesonychids, all these homologies, well, they can't be homologies anymore. Um, and so that undermined their whole. Um, modus operandi of trying to prove evolution by looking at homologies when the homologies were clearly not homologies at all because it changed the ancestors that they, they believe the whales came from. And then there's a case of they have found something like Pachycetus, which is supposed to be this, this um, they illustrated it like this um, half whale, half land thing. They found a, a few pieces of bone above the neck. They didn't find anything below the neck, and they were dogmatic about what this Pachycetus looked like. Unfortunately, not only uh, a bit of a fly in the water when they found more bones and found it was a fast-running land mammal and not the, anything like what they drew first. So isn't it amazing wow. that when you find a little bit of evidence, you might be able to make a transitional feet, a, a creature out of it. But when you find the whole skeleton, whoops, it's, it's one thing or the other. Sorry. And then you have things like the Basilosaurus, which is a very long, uh, thin, well, it's a gigantic thing. You're talking about 60, meters, uh, 60 feet long or so. It's a gigantic, long, thin, uh, whale-like creature. But then you have even the experts like Barbara Stahler, an expert vertebrate paleontologist, saying that the, bas- the Basilosaurus cannot be ancestral to modern weight. It's quite a different sort of creature, but it has nothing to do with how modern whales got there. And then you've got things like the echolocation in dolphins. Now, once again, the earliest fossils of echolocating dolphins are echolocating dolphins. There's, there's again, no evidence of this amazing uh, sonar system evolving in, from a non-sonar. Again, it, it looks like it was, it was created with the sonar system right in the beginning. Uh, so, so to me, it looks like the whales have always been whales and were never in a, a land. They never came from land creatures at all. But they, were, they were created to be in the sea. And that's another pretty good thing with, with the Hugh Ross types who want to believe in long creation days. And they claim, well, uh, that the evolutionary order matches the Genesis order but just allow for a bit more time. But no, it doesn't because... Genesis says whales were created on day five and, and birds were day five and the thing they uh, the land creatures were day six so the order is out of whack with with the evolutionary order which 
the order that she Ross and the the older creations they sent. Right. Well, that's yeah. We've got um, in just a, maybe a, a minute or two. Could you just oh. wrap up how um, what you think in terms of dealing like Dawkins? How we as a church um, can address uh, address uh, there? We're faced and confronted with this fight over origins. Well, okay, I think for one, uh, just briefly, I'd say to realize that, in fact, it's not so much about the different evidence, but about how we, we approach the evidence. And, and that means uh, that Christians approach the evidence by realizing that God has spoken truly in the Bible and given us a real history in the Bible. And when we uh, come from that framework, the evidence starts to make sense. Um, but the, the evolutionists are coming from a different perspective, that there's no God or no God who's created anything, and that that is the basic reason why they come up with things like evolution. It's because they've already assumed that there's no God who's um, acted in creation in history. And I think to, to get the kids, to, the, the kids to, to see that there's actually it's a clash of worldviews more than a clash of religion versus science. All right. Well, absolutely. Dr. Father, we uh, appreciate you being on. We've got about well, thank five you. seconds left. I uh, would love to have you on again. It's been such a pleasure. I'd be happy. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, God bless. All right. God, God bless. bless. God bless you, Ministry, Dr. Sarfati. And uh, we will be back again next week, folks, with a new sh- with a different show and. Uh, We uh, thank you for tuning in. God bless you all. Have a good week. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. (laughs) You're saying, word up. That biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global...